Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Professional mountain biker Adam Craig says it's one of the top three places in the universe he's ridden. Where is this magical mountain biking nirvana? It's none other than Brevard, North Carolina, home to Pisgah National Forest and DuPont Recreational Forest. The area boasts over 300 miles of peerless single track, not to mention hundreds of miles of gravel roads, creating a near endless array of routes, terrains, and challenges to explore. Four vibrant bike shops will get you sorted, whether you need gear, service, or a top-notch rental. Top it off with an array of craft breweries, cafes, and gathering spots that have earned Brevard the title as one of the best small towns in America in 2021. It all adds up to a premier mountain biking destination you'll want to experience for yourself. Find out more at explorebrevard.com. Hey everybody, welcome to the Single Tracks Podcast. My name is Jeff, and today my guest once again is Ben Turrets. Ben runs a coaching business and sports therapy practice called the Endurance Collective. He's a former professional mountain bike racer and current USA cycling coach, working with both pro and amateur athletes alike. Thanks for joining us again, Ben. Thanks for having me, Jeff. It's always uh, it's always good to be on the pod. Yeah. Well, so when I was writing out this intro. Um, I looked back at the one we used before, and this one's a little different. I actually am embarrassed to say this. I didn't realize you were a professional mountain bike racer. So you started out racing cross-country, from what I read, and you dabbled in mountain bike marathon as well. You recently competed in an enduro race. So how did that go? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, The enduro was awesome, man. Um, I haven't... So actually, I got my my um start in the mountain bike world in the early 90s as a downhill racer oh wow <laughs> yeah back when uh, downhill bikes had rim brakes and you know i just like Jeez. thinking back to you know like my current cross-country race bike is a much more capable bike than what i first raced downhill on wow <laughs> so times have changed times have changed but yeah enduro was fun man i mean i would i would dare to say Enduro is much like what we used to call mountain biking, just in general. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it just just a fun time ripping down some challenging trails, and it was pretty humbling because all those all all the people who were at the top of the field were all kind of either active or ex downhillers. Oh, interesting. And so, yeah they 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 had a a different skill set, a much more refined, uh, <laughs> downhill brain than I did, yeah. you know? So I would say, uh, I still excelled at the, the flatter <laughs> wide open pedaling sections, uh, mm-hmm. and I'm terrified of road gaps. Jeez. Oh, <laughs> wow. There were road gaps in this. Yeah, there was, there was a, a road gap and, uh, you know, like a, a small pond gap, Whoa. which was, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I rode the B line on both of us. Yeah. Well, yeah, you mentioned how you started out in downhill. How does enduro today compare to downhill back then? It seems like seems like maybe they'd be kind of similar, but I don't know. Pretty similar, yeah. I mean, nothing like, you know, I, I did some courses as like a junior where it was like wide open mammoth 
mountain style stuff where, you know, you're, you're just riding a fire road down at full speed. Yeah. So not that, <laughs> you know, it was, it was four to six minutes of wide open, super technical at the top and, uh, some, some jumpier, flowier stuff at the bottom. That was, it was just fun mountain biking. Yeah. Really good scene too. You know, I in, enjoyed being around the crowd there. We actually camped out. Oh, cool. You know, there's a big bonfire and a party the night before. And it was, you know, it was like mm -hmm. kind of like 1997 mountain bike racing. <laughs> yeah. With cooler, more capable bikes. Right. Yeah. That's awesome. Was this the kind of race where uh, it was like on site where you didn't get a chance to check out the course or did you at least get to pre-ride parts of it? We, uh, so my buddy and I, we pre-rode three of the four stages. We were just so smoked from, uh, <laughs> the uphill portions and some of the hike a bike sections that we, mm -hmm. we, we neglected to, uh, pre-ride stage two, which happened to be one of the faster, uh, more wide open stages. So, uh, you know, it presented some surprises the next day, but we got a good pre-ride in and, uh, you know, it was fun to, fun to check that stuff out and definitely, um, Definitely was beneficial to know where those gaps were. Yeah, yeah. Well, so you're primarily a uh, fitness coach, really, for cyclists. So I'm curious to know, did you do any like enduro-specific fitness training ahead of time for the race? I did, I did. Um, and and I kind of spent some time um, figuring out what that was last year hmm. because I've spent a lot more time on long travel bikes in the last really two, three years. And, uh, so a lot more time in the weight room, which really, really helped. And we have a really good strength trainer here and she kind of put a program together for one of my world cup level athletes. And I have been following that program with some slight modifications. Um, but a lot more instability work, um, some heavy lifting phases, and, you know, those of you who, who do a lot of downhill oriented stuff know that quad burn you get when you're, when you're just hovering over your saddle for minutes at a time. Yeah. Uh, so trying to simulate that, uh, with, with front squats and, and deadlifts and stuff like that. Mm. Okay. Yeah. It was, it was very different from what I was used to as a, you know, as a beanpole <laughs> cross country racer. Yeah. But one of the things that I, I learned and wish I had known when I was a 20 year old pro mountain biker was, uh, you know, how important the strength training aspect was to mm. the overall race. Yeah. We were always used to be so worried about getting big with strength training and, <laughs> and you know, ride so much. That's just not going to happen. Right. What about the transition stages? Was that like an issue for you at all? Or were you surprised like how much like endurance you needed for that as well? Like aerobic endurance? I, I was. Yeah, I was really surprised and, and it was just a very steep kind of fire road to the start of every stage. Hmm. And, you know, just riding a, a, you know, almost 30 pound six inch travel bike uphill over and over again. Uh, you know, it's not the easiest thing in the world. So there was, I, you know, I, I'll say I got blisters on my heels from pushing oh, wow. <laughs> a couple of times. <laughs> right. You got to, got to practice your hike a bike, I guess. Exactly. I learning how to put my full face on the handlebars and wear my goggles around my neck. Yeah. Yeah. Right on. <laughs> yeah. It, it, I was definitely surprised at, at the, the transition part of it and how hard that was. That, that really wore me down. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I imagine as like an endurance athlete, 
that a lot of folks probably underestimate that part and figure like, oh, I don't, I don't even need to think about that. Like, but yeah, it, it plays into your descending too. I'm sure. Like if you wear yourself out on the climbs and like getting to the top of the stage, you're going to struggle when you're going down as well. Oh, absolutely. And it was, you know, it was weird seeing guys on e-bikes come past us and they're just like, you know, and we're like, oh man, come on, you know, I'm (laughs) going to push this heavy thing up to the top of the stage and I'm going to lay down for 20 minutes before I can do the stage. Yeah. (laughs) Well, let's get into the topic at hand here today and talk about fitness metrics. Mm -hmm. So with the explosion of training apps and devices, seems like riders today have access to a number of fitness metrics that I assume can potentially help us get in better shape. One of the numbers that people have been tracking for a while now is something called VO2 max. So tell us, what does that exactly measure for a person? Yeah, so there is a ton of metrics out there. And, and VO2 max is kind of like the gold standard mm. that we help people to forever. And it measures gas inhaled and exhaled. And what you can do is tell the the power and heart rate ranges where you are aerobic and anaerobic as well as kind of the maximum volume of oxygen you can move through your body. Okay. So theoretically the higher the VO2 max, the more oxygen you can move through your system mm-hmm. and in theory the more power you can produce. Okay. More power is better. Right. But there's a lot of caveats to that. And so I think one of the things that's important to talk about today is the context of these tests. And hmm. with VO2 max, one of the big things that I always, you know, because people certainly ask, like, do I need to get a VO2 max test? Mm-hmm. And my kind of question to them is, well, what are you going to do with that information? <laughs> right. You know, a VO2 max test is a lab test. Um, so you have to, to go to a performance lab put on the mask and do the test. And then you're going to get a series of numbers. Those numbers aren't necessarily the first things that are going to help you get better. Hmm. You know, I I would make the argument to uh, an amateur athlete that there's a lot of things that come in front of getting a VO2 max test that are going to help you. Okay. So is your nutrition dialed in? Are you getting enough rest? Do you have a training plan that is that includes progression? Mm-hmm. And um, are you increasing the stimulus every week to to try and force adaptation? And that those simple things to start are, are going to be much more useful than something like VO two max testing. Okay. And I and I was having this conversation with another coach the other day, and we were talking about testing metrics, and and VO two always comes up, and it's like. Unless somebody, in my opinion, if somebody else is paying for you to get that testing, mm-hmm. then that's meaningful. And you are, you are at a level where those numbers can make a difference in the lab. Okay. So, you know, the other thing about VO2 max testing now is, is there are some, there is software out there that can approximate it. Training Peaks and, and um, you know, we as coaches, a lot of us use WKO. And um, you can approximate the values of your VO2 max. Hmm. But it really is important to know that VO2 isn't the whole picture of you as an athlete. It really is essential that 
you contextualize these numbers and, and testing. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's, there's so many other pieces of low hanging fruit before you get to VO2 max. Yeah. So I guess like the traditional, the lab test that you're talking about, that's the one we've probably seen like videos or like pictures of people like person on a treadmill and they've got like the mask on and they're breathing into it. And yeah, it looks kind of painful. <laughs> yeah. It's no fun. It really is no fun. Yeah. Yeah. So you, I mean, you're basically like exercising to exhaustion and, uh, but there are, like you said, there's other like approximations mm-hmm. to get that number. I remember when I was in the uh, military, they actually, um, as part of our fitness, like we had to do an annual fitness check-in to make sure that, that we were staying fit. And the story goes that they used to have people like run a mile or, or do something. This was the Air Force, so maybe other services were different. But but they were finding that people, you know, they didn't exercise all year. Or they weren't taking care of their bodies. And so they'd run a mile and they would just like collapse. <laughs> and so they had to change the test. And somebody said, hey, like maybe we should maybe we should just measure people's VO2 max. And so they had this test where you would go and, and sit on like a stationary bike and it hook you up to a heart rate monitor. And you'd go through this series of like different. I guess different resistance levels, or maybe it was different, like probably cadence amounts. They probably increased your resistance. Yeah. And then they would give you a number. They'd say, yeah, yeah, this is your number. You know, you either pass or fail. And so, yeah, I've always been interested in that number and like how accurate it is as a fitness measurement. So, so like how important is that? Like as an athlete, if I line up, you know, at the starting line and I've got a VO2 max of 50, and the guy beside me has a 60, like, is he just going to, is he just going to win? Because it's like, that's the number and, and he's capable of doing more. Or is it, is it more nuanced than that? It's, you know, there's so much more around it than that. There's just plain old fashioned hard work. <laughs> you know, it, Greg LeMond's, you know, a good example. Like it's, yeah, he had a high VO2 max number, but he also trained his butt off and, <laughs> Uh, you know, did all of the things around having that physiological advantage to be a good bike racer. You know, so the guy who shows up with a higher VO2 max, if he isn't, if he's not on form, if he's tired, mm-hmm. if he's fatigued, you know, like if, if his time to exhaustion is shorter than your mm-hmm. time to exhaustion with a 50 VO2 yeah, max. Right. Mm-hmm. You can sustain a higher level effort for a longer period of time. Um, so, you know, that, that number in and of itself is, you know, it's, it's just simply not the whole picture. Um, it's, mm-hmm. it's a yeah. snapshot of how much oxygen you can move through your body at a given time on a given day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but it doesn't take into account all the other variables of training that, may give you, Jeff, with a 50 VO2 max, huge advantages over, you know, Rider X with a 60 VO2 max. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Is that something that changes day to day too? Like you're saying, like if, you know, you line up on the day and you haven't rested enough or like, you you know, there's something going on with your diet or or you haven't recovered. Yeah. Is your VO2 max going to change day to day or is it, it's pretty constant? No, it's, 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 
pretty com- I mean, it can be trained to some extent, mm-hmm. but it's not like heart rate where it's, it's immediately affected by all kinds of outside variables like fatigue ah. or sickness or, you know, okay. caffeine intake or something like that. It is a more static metric, but it is certainly not the end all be all. And it, and it, one of the reasons I as a coach discourage a lot of my athletes from getting VO2 max testing is, you know, I ask them, you know, like, is the intelligence you're going to get from this test actionable? Can we do anything with this number meaningful? And, and a lot of times, you know, the answer realistically is no. Having an idea is fun, but if, you know, the negative side of that, you know, somebody coming back with a, a VO2 of, of 50 and they thought they were a 70, mm-hmm. the negative side of that is much bigger than the positive side of it. Right. So often, you know, like, and I, I've heard, uh, like Hunter Allen talk about it. You know, he's another coach out there that discourages his amateur athletes from, from getting, uh, VO2 max testing because mm. the, the negative far outweighs the positive in terms of just, just the psychological impact of knowing that number. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. I mean, that, that brings up the question to me then, like, why do we care so much about it? Or why do you think athletes focus on it so much? You know, because it's been this like Olympic level gold standard. And so, so many of us, and and you see this in a lot of sports, so many of us aspire to be that pro level athlete and do all the things that the pro level athletes are doing. Mm -hmm. But you don't really need to do that unless you're a pro level athlete. (laughs) I don't want my amateur mountain bike racers training 20 to 25 hours a week. Right like uh, a UCI World Cup racer. It's just going to, you know, crush their souls. (laughs) If at some point they want to try and progress to that point, okay, there has to be a structured plan to get there. Mm -hmm. But there's there's so many steps along the way that are important before we start getting somebody in a lab and and doing something like a VO2 max test. You know, if, if you're, you know, if you're a a university kid and and somebody's like, Hey, I'm doing a physiology study. Uh, you know, (laughs) can I do a VO two max test on you? Cool. Do it. But I would advise against paying money to get VO two max testing done because what you're going to get out of that is, is much less important than, um, you know, spending that money on, putting together a really good strength training plan or hmm. speaking with a performance dietitian. There's so many better ways that will immediately impact your training in the short term and the long term and the long term than spending money on a lab test like that. Yeah. I mean, I, I personally, I kind of get how it, it is tempting to like focus on it and, and to really, because it's like a number and it's been sold as this thing that kind of boils down like your fitness and, you know, my Garmin app, it even has a thing that's like, you know, you're in the top 10% for your age group or you're in the, you have the fitness age of a, a healthy 20 year old or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and like you said too, like you can compare to a professional athlete. You can say, well, Lance Armstrong had a 92 VO2 max supposedly or whatever. So I, yeah, I think for a lot of us, it is tempting to focus on it, but it's good to know that, that it's just one metric that's, possibly not even that important. I mean, it's not, it's definitely not the first thing uh, that people need to focus on. If your goal is truly being fit or like truly being competitive in racing. Outside of professional level athletes, I would, I would just say there's, there's really not a need for it. 
you know, it certainly is a valuable test as an elite athlete. There is intelligence that can be gained and actionable stuff you can do, but it requires more lab work. It requires pretty involved coaching and lots of time to train. You know, like what you're saying about numbers too is, you know, like, yes, it's a number. It's, it's similar to things like, you know, FTP. Everybody talks about that number. And yes, FTP is, can be an important number in training, but it is a snapshot and out of context, it doesn't mean much. Right. It, it is, it's, it's a number that becomes a tool to build your training off of mm-hmm. rather than measure yourself against other athletes. Right. Okay. Well, yeah. So, I mean, let's talk about other metrics. Another one that we've obviously heard about is the anaerobic or lactate threshold. So is that sort of the flip side to VO2 max or is this measuring something very different? Um, so what, what you're doing with a lactate test is you're taking blood over like a 60 minute steady state effort. Um, and you're trying to figure out when your body accumulates more acid than it can buffer. Okay. And so when that happens, you, you cross a physiological threshold and you're, you actually physically need to decrease your effort. Okay. Um, you can no longer sustain that level of effort. So the higher your threshold is, theoretically, the harder and longer you can work. And that's what we're looking for. And that is something that you can train. And, you know, there are ways outside of the lab. The, the lab is the gold standard. Um, and there are several different protocols to getting that blood lactate test done. Mm-hmm. And I, I couldn't tell you them off the top of my head, but it is the gold standard if for for heart rate monitoring heart rate and figuring out those thresholds in your body. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But there is a cheater way to do that, <laughs> you know, using power. And the great thing about power is, um, you know, it's it's a very objective measure. Mm-hmm. We talk a lot about power versus heart rate, mm-hmm. and heart rate is 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 a good metric but it is influenced by many external factors. And we kind of touched on, you know, fatigue and sickness, or mm-hmm. it could be heat dependent or dehydration. Mm. With power, you're producing 250 watts or you're not. Right. And as a coach, I'm going to use that heart rate data to dig further into why you may or may not have had a, a successful interval set. Mm-hmm. So, we're using power to estimate our threshold. Okay. And I'm, I'm sure you've heard of the, you know, the, the dreaded FTP test, Yeah. you know, the, the, the 20 minute test, which, you know, there's several versions that people, several tests that people use out there. Um, you know, some coaches are mean enough to make their athletes just ride really hard for an hour. I'm actually a big fan of that for my more elite athletes, you know, because, there's a lot of variability in a, you know, a, a 20 minute test for a downhiller is going to be very different from a 20 minute test for a marathon mountain bike racer. Mm-hmm. The marathon racer can probably produce a similar power at one hour than they can at 20 minutes where a downhiller, that power might be much higher and drop off more precipitously mm-hmm. because their anaerobic system is more trained and their, their anaerobic system is contributing more in that first 20 minutes. Right. So, you know, that's, that's the FTP test is kind of right now one of the, the easy standards to estimate your uh, lactate threshold. 
our threshold power. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I'm not, I'm not super familiar with, with any of this, obviously. And, and you're the expert. So like when I think of lactate, you know, I think of like that burning feeling that I get in, in my muscles. And when I think of that too, though, I, I feel like there's a mental component to pain, right? Especially where like mm-hmm. some people are better than others at like, you know, pushing through pain or like, going a little bit farther than somebody else who's like, nope, that's enough pain. I'm stopping. I'm slowing down, like whatever. So like, how does that play into your, your lactate threshold? Like, how do you know your limit versus like your mental limit? Yeah. I I mean, the, the, the mental governor, uh, is, is, a you know, it's your body is trying to protect itself and protects, protect its reserve energy from being used up. So, it's, it's a very powerful feeling and, and some people just aren't, you know, they hit that point where everything hurts and they shut it down, <laughs> you know, and, and typically that, that person does not make a good marathon mountain bike racer. <laughs> yeah. They may be more suited to do shorter, like gravity style events because yeah, you're going to burn, but you're going to burn for two to five minutes. Most people can sustain a little bit of discomfort for that period of time. You know, I, I'd say as I've gotten older, my motivation to to hurt <laughs> past uh, sixty minutes is is has decreased, and I'm uh, right. I, I no longer feel the the need to to uh, push my my body's governor. Mm-hmm. But there's been some really interesting research out there, especially with athletes who compete in race across America mm-hmm. on, on pushing through that perceived physiological limit mm-hmm. into your body's kind of fight or flight reserves. And it's probably a podcast for another time, but there's, there's some interesting, um, there, there's some interesting peer review data out there about how much more your body has and very few people can tap into those reserves. Right. Those are the top, top endurance athletes. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like what you're saying too, is that for elite athletes, like the mentally, they're all kind of at, at the level where, they're going to push through the pain and like, it's not going to be a mental block. It's, it's literally going to be their body, like just unable to go any faster or any farther. But I would imagine for amateur athletes, part of it is mental. Part of it is saying, look, this is going to hurt or like, this is hurts now. It can hurt more and you'll be okay. (laughs) Like, yeah, yeah. You know, we, we have, you know, we do a lot of coaching with ultra endurance runners here at our office. Mm-hmm. So we, two of our coaches are ultra marathoners and they there's right now is hundred mile running season, um, oh. which, you know, <laughs> for me, is just like absolutely crazy. But, um, you know, I would never be able to do that, but gosh, the, it is such a mental game and, and being able to, you know, it's the same thing with, for, for marathon mountain bike races too, being able to, keep your head in the game for four to six hours of, of moderate to high intensity riding. It's, it's a challenge and making sure that you have the presence of mind to, to do all the other things like, you know, make sure you're eating and drinking and using your lockout when you're climbing and, and, you know, Mm -hmm. dropping your seat post on descents, you know, like those may seem like really simple things and no duh things, but, man, when you've been riding for four and a half hours at your limit, sometimes you forget to do stuff. It's really simple things like that. <laughs> yeah. Counter steering becomes a difficult thing. Mm-hmm. 
So there's all kinds of stuff that comes into play when, you know, you're physically pushed to the limit. There is a mental aspect. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Well, okay. So we talked about uh, VO2 max and lactate threshold. Are there any other similar fitness metrics that riders can or should pay attention to? Fatigability and, and things like time to exhaustion, when when your body, how, how long you can sustain high levels of output before you just explode <laughs> is really important with... We work with a lot of juniors too, and and you'll have riders come in and say, "I'm a sprinter," mm-hmm. and that's always you know we get a a chuckle out of that because, okay, you may have a really really high max power, mm-hmm. but can you produce that max power after three hours of racing? Yeah, and that's that's a really important thing to look at it, and and mm-hmm. something that can be very easily trained is, can you you know if if you come in and your max power is 1500 watts, well, can you produce that? the end of three hours of bike racing if not and it's 900 watts is that you know is it does that keep you in the top tier are you still on the podium if you produce that much you know so contextualizing some of these metrics is also really important when does it matter yeah you know you can you can throw down huge watts but if you can't do it when the race is won then you know what does it what does it really mean right you know, efficiency factor is, is something we look at and, uh, you know, it's essentially how efficiently are you doing, are you riding, uh, for a given set of intervals? Um, and, and it's typically used for more steady state stuff. So sweet spot endurance riding, you know, that's also, you know, we talk about coaching marathon racers. It's, it's very important that a marathon racer is a very efficient rider. Mm. They have good left, right balance with their pedaling, uh, heart rate decoupling is something we look at, which is when does the rise in your heart rate decouple from your power output? When does it no longer reflect the power that you're putting out? Hmm. Um, so as you fatigue, that heart rate slowly climbs and you might be producing the same or less power towards the end of an interval. And that's, you know, that's something we're looking at. And again, uh, it's information that can lead to interval design and training plan design to increase fitness, increase adaptability to a certain type of event. Yeah. Well, I mean, it sounds like these additional metrics, none of these are like a single number. I mean, I'm imagining like you have charts and graphs and it's like, you know, X over Y and, you know, time over metric and all kinds of stuff. But that is really cool to think about you know, how all that plays in and then how does it tie to a race? Like you're saying where, you know, you're, you're riding for three hours, but then what if you got a sprint at the end for the finish? Exactly. So yeah, yeah. Not, not something that can be boiled down to a single number. So when we're talking about these training metrics, uh, are there different ones that mountain bikers are going to focus in on compared to say road bikers? No, I mean, they, they are pretty similar, um, you know, mountain bike racing, depending on the style of racing tends to be, to have higher variability in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, if you think about, uh, like, a an XCO race, you're on the gas con- on and off the gas constantly. It's not unlike a, a cyclocross race or even a, a really fast criterium. But if you're a marathon racer, your efforts going to be much more similar to like a long road stage 
Um, so, and then you get into something like downhill where it's just like, you know, as hard as you can go for three to five minutes and, and, yeah. and that's it. Um, so the metrics are pretty similar, but you know, like certain types of mountain biking mirror certain types of road riding mm. more readily than others. And those metrics we can use, uh, in very different ways to, find successes and limiting factors, strengths and weaknesses. Um, mm -hmm. you know, uh, something that we look at a lot as coaches is there's a, a feature in the software called a, a, a power duration model. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's essentially a, a curve that shows where your, where your power stacks up in the world, essentially. Um, you know, mm -hmm. and, and, the purpose of it is to suss out where are your strengths and weaknesses. So as a marathon mountain bike racer, I want to see a power curve that's, that's more on the flat side, almost like a time trial list hmm. because there's not a, there's not a whole lot of head to head sprinting happening in a marathon mountain bike race. Right. There's kind of a whole shot. I mean, like people go pretty hard at the start, mm -hmm. things separate out and you settle into the race and, you know, there's not, there might be a group of one or two at the finish and yeah, there might be a sprint, but for the most part, it's a pretty steady, hard effort. Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, you've watched a world cup XCO race or a short track race and man, you got to be able to produce high levels of power over short duration over and over and over again. So that, that power curve looks different. And, and then you get into downhill where you want that, that, you know, sub five minute power numbers to be really high, um, almost like a BMX racer, yeah. but they, they don't need to have great 30 minute, one hour, three hour power. Cause they're never riding them. You know, like right. that's, that's, you know, you're, you're going to train in those, uh, zones in the off season to build up your aerobic base, but that's not where a downhill race happens. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So while we're on the topic of, of road versus mountain biking, there's an episode on your endurance collective podcast debating the merits of indoor versus outdoor training. <laughs> and I know a lot of mountain bikers really scoff at the idea of training indoors. You know, we'll, we'll ride outside whenever we can, but I'm curious, like, is it possible to get the same quality workout on the trail versus on the trainer or even on the road versus, versus on a trainer? So one of the things I learned early on as a mountain bike racer was that I needed to get a road bike, you know, and, and when I, when I got my first coach, the first thing he did was convince me to buy a road bike because, Oh man. Uh, yeah, I know. Right. <laughs> Nobody wants to hear that. Too. I know. Like, I know. Oh, I know. Really? Um, and, and I've gone back to, and, and you start to see this with, um, riders like Yolanda Neff as a, as a, uh, somebody who rides her mountain bike on the road a lot, mm -hmm. you need to spend time on consistent terrain mm -hmm. to do aerobic intervals. Long, steady state intervals are really hard to do on single track, um, especially if it's, it's real chunky stuff um, because you start getting a lot of anaerobic contribution to your interval. The other part of it is resting, doing active recovery on a technical trail is next to impossible. <laughs> right. So you just can't do it. And so it, you know, a, a road bike or a trainer is really good for that type of work. 
you know, I spent some, I, I think I rode the trainer five days this year. And out of those five days, three of those five days were a cross country mountain bike on my trainer doing mountain bike Zwift. Okay. That almost counts as mountain biking, but not quite. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's, it's, you know, video game mountain biking. You know, I certainly don't enjoy it. I do have a lot of, I, I coach a couple of racers who live in New England. And so in January, they are spending large amounts of time on the trainer building up that aerobic base. And they don't get as much opportunity to get outside when they can in the winter. I encourage them to, you know, we'll, we'll reshuffle their training or training plan around because there's a dry day on the trails. And, you know, I want them to get some of that experience. But, uh, yeah, road, road bikes, mountain bikes with file tread tires are also a kind of a good substitute for a mountain bike. Mm. So second set of wheels with a road, a road setup on it. Mm-hmm. Last year was the first year I really encouraged some of my more elite level riders to spend more time on their mountain bike than I have in the past. So yeah. doing some intervals that I traditionally would have had them do on a gravel bike or a, a road bike having them do those on their mountain bike with road tires mm-hmm. just to really get familiar with the feel of their bike and the setup and, and everything I think is really helpful. Mm-hmm. And you see that a lot now from the, the world cup level riders as well. Yeah. Well, I, I remember I did a, a interview with um, Chip from Wahoo fitness and he was saying, uh, you know, obviously he's, his incentive is to sell a bunch of smart trainers, <laughs> but he was saying that, when their smart trainer first came out, you know, it was the kind of thing where like, you know, a few people in his writing group had them and some other folks didn't. And the people who had them ended up getting faster more quickly than, than the people who were just riding on the road and doing their training outdoors. Is that something you've seen with your athletes where like there's things you can do on the smart trainer that maybe is, is even better than the road? Or, or, or if you like, say you lived in Florida, like it's, you know, you go out on the road, but it's flat all the time. So, so are there advantages to the, the trainer versus actually being outdoors? You can be really precise on the trainer. You know, it's, it's sometimes much easier to do like anaerobic threshold type intervals on the trainer mm-hmm. where you're doing short, hard sprints over and over and over again you know, and, and not having to worry about things like traffic, <laughs> right? Stoplights, stoplights, all that stuff. Uh, <laughs> certainly if you yeah. live in an urban area, trainers are very helpful. Um, and like we said, cold, cold climates or even hot climates. Um, you know, people who live in Arizona use the trainers in the summer hmm. and that's kind of becomes their off season. But I encourage my riders to, to ride outside more often than not. I, I'm not a, um, I'm a big fan of training, specificity. Mm-hmm. And for me, you know, if every workout had some aspect of bike handling involved in it, I'm a happy guy. I mean, I know that's not always the reality, but especially with mountain bikers, the more you're riding your bike on variable terrain, mm-hmm. the better. Yeah. You're not going to get a chance to uh, do a couple of sweet spot intervals and then um, practice your drop skills on the Wahoo. Right. You know, and, 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 and it's, you know, I, I don't want to, um, you know, it is a, the, the smart trainer is a very valuable tool. Mm-hmm. Um, and it certainly makes indoor training way less monotonous, mm-hmm. but riding your bike on terrain is, is the gold standard. Mm. Yeah. Well, you mentioned gravel riding and that seems like an option now. So is that 
a good substitute, especially for mountain bikers who are like, no, I'm not getting a road bike. Can I just ride my gravel bike? Is that going to give me the same benefit? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and I, a lot of the mountain bikers I coach just have a gravel bike. They have a road wheel set up for it, mm-hmm. but they'll do a lot of their steady state endurance stuff on their gravel bike mm-hmm. or they'll, their you know, they have a, a hardtail that is their gravel bike. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we, we have a couple of spots around here in um, Duke Forest is one spot in, in Umstead Park where mm-hmm. there's a ton of gravel and mm-hmm. it's a great place to get aerobic intervals and, and a long aerobic, consistent aerobic ride done where you don't have to be on the road and, and you can, you know, enjoy time in the woods. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And the bike handling too. I mean, I'm always shocked when I get on a gravel bike and cause you got no suspension and yeah, you got the skinny tires and yeah, it's like you, you got to pick your lines and, and really pay attention. You got to pick your lines and, you know, you can't, you can't just hit a rock or, or roll through a pothole at full speed. Um, you know, you pay a price for that. Yeah. You know, and, and so, you know, you kind of get a little bit of best of the both, both worlds there. Mm-hmm. It's, it, it's also a, a great, you know, it's, it's been a sport that's certainly grown a ton in the last few years, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, um, I think at the, the detriment of road in, in a lot of ways, um, I've definitely seen more mountain bikers kind of come over to the gravel side of things for training mm-hmm. uh, and, and a little bit of racing too. You know, mountain bikers who, who used to do some road races are spending more time on their gravel bike now. Yeah. Interesting. So in another episode of your podcast, you talked about underfueling versus overfueling. And to me, this is a really fascinating topic because I feel like I get conflicting advice from my friends. You know, I did a, a bikepacking trip earlier this year and, you know, obviously fueling is a big part of that and have done some hundred miler uh, mountain bike rides. So how do you know if you're getting the right balance of fuel on longer rides? Like, How do you know if you're under or over or if you're just right? Uh, well, certainly if you're under fueled, um, you get that dead feeling in your legs, you feel hungry, you're, you know, um, or dehydrated. What about just before that though? Like how do you know you're getting close? <laughs> just before. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we, we have a couple of dietitians here that we work with and, and, um, a lot of times what they'll do with some, some of our athletes is, is essentially plan that out to the gram of what they need based on some testing we'll do with them, sweat testing. Mm-hmm. Um, where we determine how salty their sweat is, how much salt they need in their sports nutrition drink. Yeah. Because everybody's different, I guess, is what you're saying. Exactly. There, there's no one right answer here. So that's why I get the conflicting advice. Because, I mean, literally, somebody will say, oh, I need a goo every 30 minutes. And somebody else is like, you know, yeah, once an hour. Or, yeah. There's, there, there, everybody has, you know, there, there, there's some general advice. You know, you, you I'm always shocked when I, when I find out people don't eat, uh, when they ride bikes and, um, you know, general rule over an hour, you should probably be fueling. Um, you need to be eating something and, you know, if you live in a, a hotter climate, probably need to be using some form of, of sports drink mix mm. gels. I 
tend to have people shy away from, um, because they can, they spike your, your blood sugar so quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and then and they taste kinda, awful. So yeah. Well, like, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, and then you kind of crash on the backside of it. It's like drinking a Coke, you, you know, you can drink your Coke yeah. to kind of shock yourself back to life, but then you got to back it up with some real food. Right. I, I drink Mountain Dew and it, it works well for me, but yeah, it's not for everybody. Extreme man. <laughs> yes. So plan, just having a general nutrition plan and following it is really good, um, and, and, and helpful. And, you know, there, there are not a whole lot of for sure things in, in bike racing, mm-hmm. but one thing that is for sure is if you don't fuel, you will not succeed, you know, and then the, the overfueling aspect of it is, you know, everybody's had that like kind of sloshy feeling in their gut. Mm-hmm. If you take on too much carbohydrate and your body cannot absorb that, over the course of a certain amount of time, you're going to get that kind of sugar gut feeling of sloshing around in your intestines because your, yeah. your intestinal walls literally can't uptake that carbohydrate into your body. Right. So it's like a digestion thing. It's not like you have too much energy or whatever you want to call it, like in your bloodstream. It's, it's just literally like your body can't process it. Yeah. Your body can only process so many grams of carbohydrate an hour. Um, and again, that's, that's somewhat different for people, uh, different people. And, you know, that's, that's something I'll leave up our, our experts to talk about because I, mm-hmm. you know, I just kind of nod my head and, you know, know the general rules, but, um, there, there's some, it's, it's pretty low tech ways to figure it out. Um, and, and it, we were talking about VO2 max earlier, figuring out your fueling, and how many grams of carbohydrate you can take on an hour and what kind of sports drink works for you, that will benefit you so much more mm-hmm. um, in the short term and uh, in with, with relation to your performance than getting a VO2 max test. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. You know, if, if you have a really good fueling plan and you know what fuel works best for you, mm-hmm. you're going to be shocked at how how successful you'll be Hmm. yeah well i mean that that kind of that part of the advice that i hear from people does fit a lot of people say you need to figure out what works for you you need to try like during your training rides like eating different foods and seeing how you do like how do you feel i mean one of the things a lot of people like to talk about is like real food versus like you know these sports energy drinks or bars or whatever uh, do you you have an opinion on that, or what have you found works for you? Again, just for you. That's not for like everybody. But. I I like to eat as much real food as I can when I ride. Mm-hmm. I do uh, on longer rides. I'll fuel with a carbohydrate drink mix. So um, I what's uh, scratch super fuel is what I use primarily. Okay. Um, and I like their. Uh, I like their hydration drink mixes as well, mm-hmm. just because they don't have a whole lot of junk in them. Um, and, and not a lot of color. And, you know, I try to, I try to be as minimalist as possible with that. Yeah. But you know, I, I like what a lipid enhanced, uh, recovery wafers or, uh, uh, potato chips. (laughs) (laughs) I was like writing this down. I need to get some of those on Amazon. Yeah. Uh, no, you know, I, 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 I like, um, I like to have savory things too. Cause you know, you're, you're having so much sugary stuff. Um, we, we had one of our dietitians ran a hundred or a 50 mile ultra marathon, uh, last weekend. And 
you know, she was crushing some pickles and potato chips and, you know, all kinds of salty stuff because she's drinking sugar, sugar drink the whole time. Um, so it's good to kind of yeah. shake it up a little bit. You know, when I was in Europe, I ate a lot of little finger sandwiches and um, mm. like uh, the the scratch feed zone cookbook type mm-hmm. uh, rice bars made out of sticky rice and like bacon and eggs and stuff. Oh, wow. Some of the stuff can be really delicious. Yeah. You know, I have to I have to like shoo my wife out of the refrigerator because she's eating my uh, my riding nutrition stuff because uh, <laughs> it tastes good. Yeah. And that's a good sign when you find stuff like that. Yeah. Like athletes only. Yeah, I tell my kids that with the like cliff bars, they want to just like eat, eat, sit on the couch and eat one. I'm like, no, no, you gotta, you gotta exercise. You gotta earn that. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I remember the days when I'd ride with a, uh, you know, the old style power bar and, you know, it was like 20 degrees out and you had to have it mm-hmm. inside your, your base layer. So it, it would be warm enough that you could actually chew it. <laughs> those days are over, man. Yeah. Even then, man, you like break your teeth on those. Yeah. Those are awful. I know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's great advice. And it's cool that people are coming around to that idea of like eating real foods and, and yeah, um, it took me a while to figure out the salty thing as well, where, you know, it's like every prepackaged nutrition, sports nutrition thing you buy is sweet. I mean, it's like 95% of it is just sweet and yeah, you need that salt and eventually, yeah, you figure that out. Both, you know, there's, there's a psychological aspect to it too, man. It, it, it crushes your soul if you're doing a, a four hour race and you're just eating candy the whole time. And, you know, it'd be nice to have, you know, something salty. I almost you know, like crush a piece of pizza. Yeah. Pizza. Yeah. I have friends that ride, go bring a slice of pizza on a long ride. And yeah, I'm always jealous. That's definitely the way to go. <laughs> Well, Ben, uh, thanks so much for taking the time to chat. Uh, I learned a ton and, uh, yeah, always such a, a great source of advice and, and information. So thanks. Yeah, dude. I appreciate, I appreciate the invite and, uh, look forward to, uh, guesting sometime else too. Yeah. You can find the YouTube podcast for the Endurance Collective online and the website is theendurancecollective.com. We'll have links to both of those in the show notes. That's all we've got this week. We'll talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.